Hey, welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting and enjoying a cup of coffee or whatever you're doing, I'm glad you're here. Hey, welcome to the Brewcast, everyone. My guest in this episode is an amazing individual who I have been blessed and privileged to get to know. Uh, Khalil Rashidon was wrongfully incarcerated for 15 and a half years for a murder he did not commit. He was subsequently exonerated, though he admits to the many wrongs that he did commit, and he now sits on a number of community boards, including the Arizona Faith Network, where we met. If you listened to episode one with the Reverend Katie Sexton Wood, you may have heard Khalil mentioned during our conversation. He is a strong advocate for criminal legal reform and works with people who are being released from prison through an organization called Sage Counseling in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, this conversation is a little long, but I think it's well worth it. I really hope you enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Khalil, welcome to the Faith and Copy Brewcast. I'm really glad, actually, that you are able to be here and you're able to take the time. I'm, I'm actually uh, honored, you know, to be invited and, you know, anything that we can do to, um, you know, empower people to bring change to a, a, a system, a legal system that's supposed to be founded on justice. Um, you know, I'm honored to to be in the room and, and have those conversations because I think our um, communication has broken down between communities um, or neighbors, as we should say, you know, know thy neighbor. So, um, you know, I'm honored to be invited here today. Thank you. And I know you you sit on a lot of boards, you represent a lot of organizations. So I just want to be really clear that everything that you say today is not necessarily representative of those boards, that this is you telling your story and sharing your perspective. And so uh, we just want to be really clear about that as well. So tell us the story. How, what happened? How did you become incarcerated? How were you exonerated? And how did that lead you to what you're doing today? Yeah. And, and the, you know, the biggest thing is, um, you know, growing up as a, as a youth, my perspective of, of life um, was, was a little bit faster. You know, it, it was probably triggered because, you, you know, I may feel that I didn't have the needs but but as we say in, in our community, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, we we struggled at times. However, those struggles didn't hinder. You know, we always had a meal on the table. We always had clothes on our backs, as as my mom would say. But um, you know, growing up, you going to school in this mid '80s, Southern California, you know, crack is just introduced to to my community, and you know, I'm going to high school and, you know, some of my fellow high school uh, schoolmates are, are driving up in cars and, and, you know, have a different pair of shoes to wear to school every day. And here I am with, with three pair of pants that I'm rotating and, um, you know, just peer pressure. You get bagged on. Nowadays, people call it bullying, but you get bagged on and you want to change that perspective and keep up with the Joneses you know, it caused me to, to lose patience at a, at a, as a kid in high school, you know, what do I know really about patience? 
you know, I mean, all I had to worry about was doing homework, watching cartoons, doing chores and eating cereal. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Let alone uh, the daily struggles that adults had to had to deal with, you know, especially my parent, my mom. That caused me to be impatient and it caused me to want more. And, you know, every day coming home from school, you know, there were older gentlemen in, in the community who, you know, was always trying to recruit us to to do things for them. And, um, you know, I bit after fighting it so much, I bit, um, you know, I, I was never a, a dumb child. I refuse to acknowledge that, um, you know, because the things that my mother had put in me, you know, I, I, I can't sit here today and say, oh, I didn't know, you know, what could eventually happen. You know, there was only two paths of going into the streets was the grave or prison. Those those are the end goals of, of just going into the streets doing wrong. Mm. I say that because about 13 is really when I first ran away. And this is no way in reflective of my mom. This is more reflective of, of me growing up too fast and and not really accepting the status quo. You know, I wanted more at a younger age. So it, it caused me to start getting involved with selling drugs. Mm -hmm. um, when I started selling drugs, you know, my mom, she didn't accept that. She was no play, no joke. And, and she was like, hey, you got two choices. You could either stop selling selling drugs, go back to school and stay in school, or you can get out of my house. Wow. And, you know, me thinking I was grown, I, I chose to run away and get out of the house because, you know, I had that taste. As I tell people, our youth today that I, I counsel, you don't even want the taste of that on your tongue because it's, at that point, you're going to grow a, a bigger thirst that can't be quenched. You're never going to be able to make enough money and, 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 and that's what it was. So over the years, I started to get better at it, you know, elevating. And until one day I was in Tucson and I put a deal together that went horribly wrong. An associate of mine ended up losing his life. And, you know, the state came after me, even though I did everything to prove that I wasn't there, didn't participate in it. The state decided to put me in a position where or they wanted to use me as an informant pretty much to bring everybody down. And when I refused to cooperate and not go to trial, the state turned around and basically charged me with the crime, pretty much railroaded me and, and sent me to prison uh, for life sentence. So, you know, over that 15 and a half years of being incarcerated, I really had to grow up. You know, I, I grew up in prison. How old were you when you went, when you went, when you were uh, put to prison? Okay. Yeah. So, so I went to prison at 22. Okay. You, you know, and I tell people even now my timeline, the timeline of my life, you know, I, I ran away and I started having problems at 13. And then from 13 to 22, you know, I was just pretty much out there on the street, you know, no real job, no nothing. Hmm. And then from 22 to 38, I was incarcerated. So the timeline of my life from 13 to 38, you know, I was disconnected from society. So I say, wow. so I'm pretty much like nine years old, you know, and, and, and I say that because most people think that it's all about the reentry or, or second chance. 
when I never even gave myself a first chance. You know, I, I you know, I was not established as an adult. Mm. And the funniest thing about that is when I when I finally was released, I had so many issues of getting my vital documents because they they never had me on file as an adult in the state of California because I was always under the radar. Mm. So, you know, I, I go back and I say that that 15 and a half years in prison, it really opened my eyes to where I, I was done. I had to I had to tell myself, look, you know, if you ever walk the, you know, be able to walk out of these gates again alive, then you need to change your life. And it was it was, I had to grow up. What what made you th- what what triggered you to think that? Well, just the reality. Um, it's funny because I was just talking to my sister last night where I was. You know, we talk about game plans. What's what are what are our game plans of life? And I've always had this game plan to survive. You know, and 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 there's these there's these myths, these quotes in in my community, trying to make a dollar out of fifteen cents and all of this. The struggle is real. However, I was always embracing a game plan to survive. And it wasn't until this conviction that, you know, when that when that judge said life without the possibility of parole for 15 years, that was like the brick that hit me in the face. I mean, you I've had so many warnings and, and I say spiritual warnings from God. You know, there's been times that I've been shot out out there in the community. There's been times that. You know, I was traveling and I was, you know, in between cities and, and there was like 20 minutes that I don't remember, you know, and even though I was driving, you know, I wasn't under the influence of anything, but I was probably asleep. I always talk about you have so many warnings before, you know, you just get hit in the face with that biggest brick. And and when I got hit in the face with it, that's when the judge hit the hit the gravel and said, hey, life without the possibility of parole, parole for 25 years. You know, my daughter was six and, and I, you know, I go into the prison and that's where it's like, okay, this just got real because now you're, the, you know, I'm in a higher level custody. I'm on the five yard and, you know, I don't, I'm not a killer, but now they put me on the yard where, you know, they quote unquote, they say, this is the worst of the worst. And where were you? Which prison? Uh, I, I started off in Florence, Florence, Arizona okay. at Central Unit. And then when I reclassed down, I went to Yuma and then reclassed down and, and I went to uh, Buckeye, which is Lewis Complex. What does that mean, re- reclassed down? So, so like less of a threat or? Well, yeah. So you're always reclassed. Like it's your status. So the way they do reclass, you have a public score which is your public risk score that's associated with the nature of your crime. Mm-hmm. And then you have an institutional score, which is your institutional risk score associated with, you know, um, internal, how do you function inter- in the internal population community? Are you getting tickets? Are you having fights with other people? So that will always boost up your, your uh, institutional score to where um, it'll send you to a higher custody yard. So, you know, most of the people, when you have, when you're convicted of a a first degree, you go to the highest yard 
um, well, the second highest, because the super max is where you're just closed down. Those are where you're, where death row used to be. They're pretty much, um, you know, locked down and restricted, you know, 23 hours of the day and stuff like that. So that was the brick, you know, and, and going into that prison yard at the age of 22 and seeing these 20 foot walls and looking up and seeing guards on there, it, 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 it just got real. And for any person to say they wasn't afraid their first time down, I was petrified because I didn't know anybody. And what I know now is, is that prison is not, no matter how much they want us to normalize it while we're there, prison is an abnormal environment. <laughs> so, wow. so, you know, here I am walking into this abnormal environment. I laid in my, my bed and most men won't admit this, but when you're in there, there's several nights I laid in that bed crying, you know, because I, I knew after so many warnings that I failed to change my own conduct and behavior. Now, even though I didn't do what I was there for, I was still out there. Like I wasn't selling Girl Scout cookies. You see what I'm saying? Um, and that's why I say it's the biggest brick. Hey, here you go. Um, deal with it. And I just think that with me maturing is why I'm sitting here today. You know, even though I wanted to go and play basketball all the time and do this, do those, play dominoes, you know, you can't, your, your record is good on the prison yard for being, uh, for winning dominoes in spade. I can't do that uh, for the rest of my life. So I started going to our law libraries. Once the law library, you know, we had, we used to have law libraries on our yard. And I started looking into my case and there was some to. of it. Does that mean uh, they don't anymore? Yeah, they, they, they took them away. I mean, it's, it's funny because I met some of the, the best jailhouse lawyers who are really smart and they used to file civil suits against the prison. They used to file, they used to work on people's cases and actually get them out of prison, get their cases overturned. So they took it away. Yeah. Wow. So, so the state decided, well, you know, Hey, let's pull the plug on this and give you guys um, paralegals, which the paralegals didn't know anything. So, so yeah, that was their way of, of, you know, taking away what was working. So um, several of these older guys used to pull my ear, Hey youngster, get in here. Don't, don't go out there on the basketball court, get in here and get in this law library. Um, because I had a notorious prosecutor by the name of, of Ken Peasley. He was responsible. This was the rumor. He was responsible for about 10, 10% of the people on death row uh, over his reign in, in uh, Pima County attorney's office. So that was my wake up call to fight, you know, and most people will lay down and, and, and do their, do their time. But, but I had to fight. The, the appeals process is a long, it's a very long process. And the first four years, first three years, I kept getting denied, denied, denied. And some of the issues we would raise was prosecutorial misconduct. The prosecutor in my case significantly lied. Detectives lied, came on the stand and lied. You know, family members who had knowledge of their, of their uh, actions were, were threatened. Uh, with perjury if they testified. So, so you know, they made it to where I was boxed in, where they just wanted me to, to be railroad. I was going to prison and the prosecutor was pissed off because, excuse my French, but he was teed off because... It's not, it's not the worst we've heard on the Faith and Coffee Podcast. <laughs> You're good. 
<laughs> right. We're a pretty open group here. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so uh, he was teed off because of my refusal to cooperate. So, you know, he, you know, yeah, you're going to prison at all costs. Wow. Another another notch in his belt. Mm-hmm. Which I'll, I'll let, you know, I'll talk about how everything was overturned. But, you know, it just fight, fight, fight was in me. You know, I, I felt I was always fighting for my life. You know, I'm not going to lay down that I didn't want the end of it to be me walking out of prison, you know, because I kept calculating 25. OK, I'll be 47. You know, I, I was calculating this, but some people kept trying to comfort me like, well, you know, if you get out of prison at 47, 48, you'll still be young. Yeah, forget that. <laughs> but by their standards, maybe. Yeah, by their standards, you know, but I'm looking and I'm seeing some of these guys had been down 30 years. You know, they went in in their 20s and wasn't released. And now they were in their 60s and, and you know, 50s and 60s. And, and you were fighting for your life. Absolutely. In, in 2001 or in 2000, and, and this is where I say I don't believe in coincidence. You know, I, I get transferred to Yuma, um, reclass and transferred to Yuma. I hit this yard and unknown to me, the prosecutor in my case had railroaded several, several other black men and they were all in Yuma. A lot of them were in Yuma. So they were collaborating, trying to bring awareness to this prosecutor and this guy named Bobby Tatum. I'll never forget his name because, you know, had he not given me the information to the Arizona Justice Project, I wouldn't be here now. Hmm. So Bobby Tatum, he could, he walks up, he gives me this, this note and he says, you had Ken Peasley in your case, right? I said, yes. And he gave me, he said, you should, you should write this Arizona justice project. Now, mind you, I had been railroad and, and I felt I had a few dump truck attorneys, except for my immediate uh, or my direct appeals attorney, Miss Carla Ryan, who fought hard, but I felt, you know, my trial attorney dumped me, um, my rule 32 uh, attorney dumped me. So here I am being handed a, a, information for more lawyers. And I'm like, nah, maybe I should just stick with these jailhouse lawyers. And, you know, he really encouraged me like, hey, write them. So I sat on it for 30 days. And I'm glad I didn't lose that information because when I wrote them, that was my first interaction with a man named Larry Hammond. And um, Larry Hammond was was one of the founders of the Arizona Justice Project. And um, um, I remember his secretary writing me saying, hey, send me send me all your stuff real quick because they they were alerted by Ken Peasley, which they I guess they had already been fighting him on other cases. So I, I sent all my stuff and probably within six months, about three to six months, I get a letter back and a letter is from uh, Tucson and um, it's from the office, uh, the law office of Greg Kirkendall, who who is one of the attorneys working with the uh, Arizona Justice Project. You know, he's let me know, hey, I, I'll be helping you or looking at your case. And then about maybe that week or the next week, I get another letter from Amy Armstrong. So Amy Armstrong was a, a, a second year law student, 2L. Mm-hmm. I opened this letter and she's like, you know, hey, I, we looked at your case and, you know, there are some serious manifest injustices and I'm going to keep fighting until you come home. You know, I'm not going to give up on you. 
you know, it's just very disheartening that this that this occurred. I tell people, I looked at the envelope, Mike. I know she said she was a law student, Mike. She was talking like an, an attorney. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. That's encouraging. Right. Well, I didn't want I didn't want to, you know, smoke like I had already been messed over by attorneys. And, and this one thing, like I used to tell the attorneys, like, just be straight up with me. Don't sell me the gold that I'm going home because that's what happened with my trial attorney. He was like, ah, don't worry about it. You'll go to trial in April and you should be going home in April. Yeah, but he didn't say April of 2021. I did, that, that caused me not to have trust for attorneys. So um, when Amy, who was his law student, was talking this big, heavy talk, I'm like, wow, she really blowing smoke. Hmm. And, and I didn't trust them at first. I ended up becoming spiritual. And you heard me several times on, on AFN's platform talk about, you know, I'm spiritual. Because while I was incarcerated, I've read several books. I've read the Bible. I've read the Quran. You know, I read the, the Bhaktivad Gita, you know, which is the Hindu, the Bhaktivad, you know, and, and I was introduced to that by Amy. The reason I was reading everything is because spiritually I'm still growing. And I didn't want to become this one arm boxer because I, I, I had taken my Shahada and, and I practiced Islam. And, you know, prior to that, you know, I was reading um, the Bible and 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 I started to realize, like, wait a minute, there's a lot of similarities here at the core. And then I just started digging deeper. And, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but when when I was heavy in my studies, it was like, don't ask why, <laughs> because you're going to get a, you're You're going to say, well, why did this happen? And you're going to do some studying and you're going to get an answer. But then there's another question to that. And then next thing you know, you're just, and, and, and until just, the world you know, <laughs> theology and philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to have, and you have to know history. Yes. Um, history have to overlap. I just came to the, con, you know, my conclusion that I'm just going to be spiritual because we, we watch a lot of things occur in the name of God that becomes inhumane treatment. Sometimes it, it, it becomes death for some individuals. And it's like, wait a minute. If everybody say that they believe in a God of goodness in humanity and, and, and not, not just man's laws, but universal law, you know, and that's the Bhattiva coming out of me because I started looking at the universal laws and how when we are not one with nature, we become inhumane. You know, when we don't eat natural things, our body doesn't process it. When we don't have natural thoughts, people's minds start to to wither away. You see what I'm saying? And, and I say this because, and this is my personal belief, I don't believe in a Big Bang Theory. I don't think, I don't believe that you can just throw, um, you can throw a, a, a glass against a wall and then all the pieces will line up to where you have cycles. You know, why is earth not mercury? There's too many things on a universal scale that man cannot comprehend. And I don't think that this harmony came out of chaos. I think that there's chaos in the harmony that that keeps, you know, it's almost like you're it's almost like the bass when you when some people play their music. Sometimes you want to rock out, you turn it up, that bass, you want to hear that bass. That's that's what I look at on a, on a, on a universal scale. This belief that, you know, the cycles of life here on Earth, the, the balance of, of oxygen and, and carbon dioxide, 
photosynthesis, all of these cycles in life to sustain mankind to breathe. That's where I say, okay, I don't want to get into the traditions because that's where the conflict comes in for me. Why can't I just love Eric and sit down with Eric and we just talk about the peaceful things because death is promised to both of us. So why, why is there conflict? And it's people's tradition. So when I started reading the Gita, it started to sharpen my focus to where I started looking at the spirituality and then also realizing one of my biggest problems coming up, we attach ourselves to results and we don't own results. So now you're motivated to do something because you're looking for a particular result. And, and when we don't get those results, we turn around and we get upset. There's emotions attached to those results. You know, it talked about the network of karma and all. And I was like, wow. So, so it just kind of brought my spirituality into focus to where we don't have to even clash over traditions. I'm going to respect you and how you practice. You invite me over to dinner and you want me to take my shoes off at the door, then I'll take my shoes off. You see what I'm saying? Because I'm going to respect you. And that's where it really opened my eyes and, 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 it, and it brought me to a, a state of peace, even though I was in a sea of chaos inside of a, a system. You know, I call it the belly of the whale, the belly of the beast. I was in there. And how do you find peace amongst this chaos? where there's a lot of a loss of hope. So there's a lot of despair. You know, how do I move forward? And the premise of prayer, my perspective, perspective is, is a form of meditation to, to tune everything out and, and be at peace and harmony with the universe. As we say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know, the same elements here on earth we find around in the universe. And we are part of that universe. Absolutely. We're part of that universe. But so often we, we separate or the universe is other and then there's us, but we don't, I mean, what I hear you saying, and, and I think it's at the heart of most religions is there is a, a continuity in, in the universe. There is a certain, and so oftentimes we separate ourselves because our, you know, our lenses are shaded or they're fogged up in a certain way. But when we're able to finally understand our part in that rhythm, absolutely, things change and there can be total chaos, but absolutely, there's an internal when, G, you know, when Jesus talked about peace, <laughs> I don't think Jesus was ever talking about the absence of war, violence or conflict for that matter. Conflict is inevitable. Absolutely. Everybody has their own perspectives. And of course, I know that mine are correct. And you're, therefore, if you disagree with me, yours must be wrong. That's the problem. <laughs> yep. I mean, as a Christian, I would say, as one who seeks to follow in the way of Jesus, God is God. There is no other God. Mm -hmm. There are different ways of interacting with, there are different ways of approaching, different ways of viewing God, but it's still the same God. And I believe, I truly believe at the heart of every major religion that I've studied, at least, is that cent that, that center line, the plumb that's line. Is the, right. the plumb line, as the prophets would say, you know, it's, and, and we're all just looking at it from different perspectives. But, I can still be a Christian without having to, and still appreciate another's spiritual perspective, whatever it might be. Absolutely. And, and with, and without adopting and saying, oh, well, if, if I think my is right and they have a different perspective, then one of us must be wrong. No, right. it's not about right or wrong. It's about sharing perspectives. And that right. doesn't mean I'm going to start adopting Muslim forms of prayer or Hindu forms of prayer or, uh, you know, Buddhist lifestyle. Although a lot of it is very compatible, I think. Right. 
I mean, and that's where I say, because because, you know, just studying, you know, Pandora's box gets open even within each faith. There's there's different schools of thoughts. And and I'll, I'll go back to Islam. You know, you have a few schools of thought based on lineage, who people felt should have been the next leader. Yeah. I mean, and that's where I say the conflict. The conflict comes where there's a misunderstanding and, OK, I, I can't talk to Eric no more. So I'm going to go and start my own congregation. Mm. You know, and, 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 and I think that the more we fragment it, we, we fragment faith that we're going to open up Pandora's box to even wider interpretations, which which is not necessarily a bad thing. And I say it's not necessarily a bad thing because I've, I've always told people, you know, my perspective is build your relationship with God. I can't build it for you. You know, even though I say I'm spiritual, I do feel I have a connection with God because my intentions are pure. When I go to take action, um, it doesn't matter what it is based on those those concepts of respect. You know, when you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, the foundation of those commandments are our own respect. Well, and build, building community. Absolutely. With with God and one another mm-hmm. and through God, I would say. Yep. So you started doing all the studying. You were having the spiritual awakening while in prison. <laughs> yep. And so how did that lead to 15 and a half years later, you're walking out? So, and once again, I don't believe in coincidence. So Amy graduates law school. She becomes an attorney. She becomes a primary attorney on my case now. You know, everything that I was telling her, you know, where people were coming in, lying, giving, you know, misinformation, stuff like that. Amy was able to track this stuff down. She was able to track all this information down, track these individuals down. And that led to me getting the evidentiary hearing about 2009. Earlier that year, I received a letter from uh, my sister advising me that my mom was was battling cancer. And it just it crushed me, you know, because I already knew me being in Arizona, my mom being in California, if something happened to her. I would never see her again. They would not let me go to a funeral or anything like that. And at that point, I hadn't seen my mom in probably what? 12 years or something like that, 11, 12 years. You know, I was granted an evidentiary hearing in the federal courts because I had to fight to move my case from the state and appeal it and appeal it until finally it went to the U.S. District Court of Arizona. And it was sitting in front of a, a federal judge for probably about two years before they started to move on it. And then it was assigned to a magistrate judge and she reviewed my case and our claims which was prosecutorial misconduct and vindictiveness, and then also Fifth Amendment violation. Uh, I mean, excuse me. Yeah, my Fifth Amendment violations for uh, voluntariness of, of my statements. And even then, everything that I did to exclude myself and statements that I made, they turned around and twisted it and turned it into a confession, so-called confession, when they used it against me internally. So we we were challenging that. So we were granted evidentiary hearing on misconduct and vindictiveness, and the judge ruled against the voluntariness of our statements. I go into um, court. Well, before we go into court, I just, I I went to Amy and I told her, I said, hey, you know, I just want to see my mom, you know, and it was just some of the things that I know I was out there doing that was wrong, you know, selling drugs, things like that. I was willing to accept my time. You know, that that time down was was for what I actually was involved in. That wasn't right. 
So I just told Amy, I said, hey, I want to see my mom. If you can just get him to give me a plea where I can get time served, I'm cool. And she looked and she said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I don't even care. I just want to see my mom. I don't want nothing to happen to my mom. She goes back and the state actually agreed. Since we're in the federal courts, we're dealing with Arizona, the attorney general's office, who's representing the state in federal court. So the attorney general's office agreed because they seen the case and they were like, you know what, this is BS. You know, this prosecutor was was foul, but they had to get their approval from Pima County because technically the AG's office didn't have jurisdiction to make the deal. But they did talk to Pima County attorney's office who initially agreed. So I go back December 2009 and I was supposed to take this plea for for being involved in drugs and then I would get time served and be released. I think I was at the 12, no, I'm lying. I think I was at 13 year mark, 13 you're and a half lying. years at that. There's a difference between lying and mistake. Oh, mistake. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're not lying. Go no, ahead. So, uh, no, I'm glad you said <laughs> Words that. matter, <laughs> man. That's, that's what this whole conversation's about. Words matter. Right. No, no, I always, I always joke when I say that. I'm, no, I'm lying. No, but I know um, you. I know. But uh, 13 and a half, I was at 13 and a half years at that point. So I was just, you know, I would have been time served and, and released. So I go back and the state refuses to accept the plea because the judge didn't want, uh, you know, when you go back on a rule 32, there has to be an issue that's raised, uh, you know, to a constitutional level, a, a serious constitutional violation for them to undo the sentence, accept the plea and then resentence me to time served. Hmm. Well, the judge, which I thank him for today, um, because we were trying to go back under ineffective assistance of counsel, which which it was. But the judge said, nah, the federal magistrate judge didn't grant an evidentiary hearing on ineffective assistance of counsel. She granted it on prosecutorial mis- misconduct and vindictiveness. So I will accept the plea uh, for such. This is where I started to see the real system because the prosecutor stands up, says, Your Honor, can I go off the record? He asked the judge, he said, do you expect us to fall on our own sword in an open court? I was looking around like they're admitting to doing wrong. Then they go back on the record. Business as usual, like nothing was ever said. So so they had refused to accept the plea. And this is why I love Amy till today. So at that hearing was Greg Kirkendall. The, the other attorney. So Amy comes back in town and Amy's like, you know what? Forget that. She comes and visits me at the jail. She said, look, I'm, we don't even need to play with them. She said, let's lift this stay. Let's go ahead with the uh, evidentiary hearing. You might be in here a little bit longer, but I think it's the right thing to do. So we lift the stay. We're no longer trying to plead this out. We go to the evidentiary hearing. Federal judge just really was like, hey, whatever you need to to support your claims, she ordered the the Pima County Attorney's Office to kind of open their files and let my attorney go and get what she needed because my attorney kept filing several motions for evidence that they never turned over. You know, she got this evidence and then this evidence was, you know, misconduct on more misconduct and discussions on police. Earlier before that, we had got grand jury, I mean, uh, jury transcripts 
when they were in deliberation and some of these judges had written, I mean, some of these jurors had written the judge, the trial judge saying that they didn't want to convict me, but they felt intimidated to convict. Yeah, it, it was just, it was wild. We go back in front of the evidentiary hearing and even, you know, against the advice of my attorney, I just was like, I couldn't let this voluntariness um, hearing, like I couldn't let that ride. And I'm saying that because the, the police actually lied. And when they picked me up, they took me to a parking lot, you know, in that parking lot, I actually thought they were going to beat me up, you know, because they didn't take me straight to the police station. And he was like, yeah, we knew you don't have anything to do with this. You know, basically it was that intimidating factor. However, if you don't help us get these people, we're going to put you in prison for something that we know you didn't do. And I'm sitting there like, wow. So as a young person, you know, I, I thought I didn't have no choice but to cooperate. So I gave my fingerprints. I, I, I made a statement. I turned over my weapon at the time. And, and all of this actually excluded me. When we went to the police station, they read me my rights as if we never went to the parking lot where I had disclosed everything that happened. This whole time I'm down, I didn't notice this till probably like, like probably eight years later or something. I'm looking at these transcripts and there's two different versions of it. During the interview, uh, the detective kept making promises to assure me on to keep talking. Basically, he was coaching me. He would turn his recorder off and then turn it back on and get what he wanted to hear. He's thinking, he's like, okay, I'm getting away with this. He's not knowing that the police department is recording the whole conversation. And so finally, when we have the evidentiary hearing, that's why I say we the judge had already ruled against, but she didn't understand it. You know, like it's hard to read a, an argument, a legal argument, that's why sometimes they have the oral arguments and we were not there to have oral arguments on, on the voluntariness of my, of, of my, of my statements. And I just, against their advice, um, when I got on the stand, I had to bring it up and I had to get this, this judge to, to, to understand that they're lying to you. And when I, when I brought up the fact that we had went to this, parking lot, the supermarket parking lot, prior to going to the police station that they, that they just, you know, magically erased. The judge looked and she finally realized, and she asked the state, she said, she said, there's six additional pages. She said, I'm seeing the whole conversation now. I mean, and she was livid. So she, she overturned the case. She made the recommendation, overturned the case. I just remember crying it really sunk in that I'm really close at, at coming home. Um, my attorney was able to fly in my mom. So this is my first time seeing my mom. And like, like at that point, like I said, we're at 13, 14 years. When I ran away from home and, and, and I didn't, I was growing up too fast. It caused me to, to not have a good relationship with my mom. You know, it was love. I would never do anything to hurt her, but we just never had a line of community, a solid line of communication because I was hard headed. I, I, you know, I had other interests and it wasn't until like I was there where she would consistently send me a letter, even though I wouldn't ask for it. And she really didn't have it. She would always like try to send me $20 and I'd be like, mom, don't send me, you know, she was being mom. And, um, 
And we actually started to grow our relationship. I started to embrace responsibilities. I started to have a different outlook on life. Even though I was in that sea of chaos, I was at peace. And that peace was able to have me looking at the playing field to, to recognize obstacles yards away, you know, miles away, or what could be potential. And, and when I say that, because they, they was treating me like I was like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or some, somebody, you know, serial killer. And the marshal said, you don't talk to nobody in here. You don't turn your head. Uh, the only one you talk to is your attorney. Don't look at nobody else. Don't speak to nobody else. And it's like, okay. So I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. So he goes and sits back down. Well, we're waiting on the, the hearing to start, and I guess shift changes. So there's this young federal marshal sitting to the right of me, and I know my mom is back there behind me somewhere, but I, I, I can't look around and communicate. You know, I'm trying to follow instructions. So all this time, my mom is trying to get my attention. And, and this is why I say the coincidence. I don't believe it. And the marshal is like, Hey, you know, he said, is that your mom back there? And I said, yeah, it probably is. And um, I said, well, the other guy told me not to communicate. And he's like, man, he said, you can say hi to your mom and stuff. You know, he's, he's like, he was real cool, laid back. And I just remember turning around. She had always talked about losing her weight. So, so, you know, just imagine, I think she was like, she was in her mid seventies. Like, yeah, she was in her mid seventies, somewhere up in there. And, and she was standing there and she was kind of just showing like, like showing like, hey, I lost weight. And she took her hands and she was like running them down her side. Like she was, you know, I slimmed down and I just started busting up. And um, I say this because when the case finally got overturned and I was released, you know, I was able to see my mom four times before she passed away um, in 2012. And, and going back to coincidence and where I say faith, and how I fight to overcome those obstacles is the fact that the judge just, he just didn't release me. You know, now they're protecting themselves from a lawsuit. So the judge gives them 180 days to refile, which there's no legal foundation to file because it's prosecutorial misconduct. It's fundamental error. You don't get a second chance, but somehow they mysteriously got this second chance to have 180 days. So I go back to the prison yard and I'm just sitting there marinating. That's what we call just not no reason to be there. I'm just marinating. I've heard that term before. Yeah. It was about 150 days in and it was like the beginning of December and Amy files a motion. And I didn't find this out till after the fact, she just wrote the judge a motion and said, can, can we get him out? His birthday's coming up. Christmas is coming up, um, you know, and I don't, I don't celebrate the holidays in traditional fashion. However, she just, she just like making this appeal, you know, his mom is sick. Let's get him home, you know, for the holidays. Lo and behold, this judge grants the motion, you know, they release me. And, um, you know, it was, it was like really weird like okay I'm, I'm getting out now my anxiety's up hey i wasn't prepared can we wait 30 more days like you, you know i mean because they the, the judge his order came like no release him immediately and then i was able to come home to to my sister at that point i hadn't seen my sister in probably about you know 16 years or something like that 
And I just talk about that reentry phase and, 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 and how my anxiety was up. It was like traveling into a time machine 15 and a half years into the future. You know, my sister, she threw a, a coming home party for me. You know, it was around my birthday and stuff. I laugh about it till today because I was probably only out there like 30 minutes or so. I was in the back room the rest of the time, like just chilling. You know, that's where I say, you know, disconnecting from the flow of society. I think when you do that, when you disconnect and you're not tapped in to that universal heartbeat is what I like to call it, or or some people say harmony. I think that's when chaos starts to settle in. Despair starts to settle in, and we're and, and now we're seeing um, the effects of that. You know, so so many people are in despair who can't even find peace in the comfort of their own home. You know, and 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 that's where I just keep it simple. You know, I I'm not judgmental. I am not the owner of judgment. However, I'm the first one who uses sticking out a hand to help you know, without nothing in return. If I walk out a store and a guy says, hey, you know, you got $5, I don't question or make him fill out an application for that $5. If it's in your nature to give, give it and be at peace doing it. And and that's that's pretty much like where my story, my my outlook in, on life, you know, and and even with me being spiritual, I tell people don't recruit me because I've been tested, which is, which leads to my testimony. <laughs> so when I say don't recruit me, we can we could lay the foundation on peace and coexistence, building on those common grounds, because even within our own communities or families, this is this is the one blessing that I believe that limited right to choose. And and every book I've read talked about some form of, of Judgment Day. And I think judgment just translates that way in English. You, you know, I, I think uh, a day of atonement, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, if and if you believe you have a good God, the concept of punishment doesn't, you see what I'm saying? It we all have to elevate spiritually. Yeah, not 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 to say that there aren't consequences for behavior, but Correct. not, oh, not yeah, necessarily absolutely. punishment. There's always the hope for redemption. I, the question I'm having in this, in, in listening to this amazing story, it would so e- be so easy, and I think the the it's almost cliche how common it happens that people who have experienced what you've experienced, and even though you acknowledge, and I I think it's beautiful how you acknowledge. Look, I'm not innocent. I did bad things, but I didn't do what I was incarcerated for, but I ended up spending the time for the things that I did do, even though that wasn't the intention. And I, I I love that you were able to own that. Um, Absolutely. Probably spent a lot more time than you would have. (laughs) Right. Right. But (laughs) had you actually been convicted for those things, but you've come out of it with this redemptive perspective. That is not, the typical story, the typical story is, or at least the typical stories that I read and that I hear from other folks is jaded. And, and I can't even, you know, I have to say, understandably so. Mm-hmm. The criminal justice system really is not geared for justice. It's not geared for redemption. It's not, it's not geared, for, you know, they used to call it the correctional system. It's not geared toward correctional or right. redeem, you know, restoration or redeeming or anything like that. 
it, it is geared to punish. It is geared to punish. And you even use innocent people as an example to try and um, sway people from doing bad things. But it's also targeted. And we've talked about this at, at Arizona Faith Network and, and mm -hmm. other venues that, you know, it is definitely geared to target certain populations in the United States. I mean, let's just absolutely. be absolutely clear about this. Um, people of color, um, poor people, uh, anybody who's considered other. Absolutely. The undesirables. as The as, undesirables, right. You know, the undesirables, the untouchables, whatever you want to call them. Absolutely. They're called different things around the world. But you've and, come out of it in a different from in a, in a completely different place. And now you have used that as fuel to go and try and reform the system. But also at the same time, you're trying to reform the system that's creating these injustices. You're also working to help those who are caught up in it. Absolutely. And, and that's the, well, that's the biggest piece. I'm not going to criticize and I, and, and I am a critic of this legal system. But if I'm going to open my mouth to criticize, I'm also going to put my hand out to say, hey, because a lot of times I've seen I've been in rooms where people go in there. There's a misunderstanding of the word revolutionary or revolution. Most people think that means war. Go straight to war. It, it doesn't. The people use war as a tool or conflict as a tool to to bring on revolution. But but revolution and, and it being associated with change, when an official says, hey, I agree with you, how do we do this? That's where communications break down because most of the people who are out there throwing those bricks, doing this, doing that, and, and on all sides of this, they don't know how to implement solutions. They're just angry. They're just angry. They're frustrated. Understandably so. Absolutely. But that doesn't get but but that's not necessarily getting us anywhere. Right. But are we looking to bring change? Are we looking to bring that same retribution? Because I have every right to be upset. But I say, you know what? It's going to be more beneficial towards peace if I can make myself available to be on the front line of that change that I'm asking for to help implement solutions. And most people don't want to do the work. And so that's why, you know, our affiliation and, and the work we do with AFN effective ways to engage in dialogue on criminal legal reform within the faith communities. You know, it's it's a way to open up conversations, build relationships with faith leaders, um, provide education and awareness on, on our smart justice initiatives, and then also to eliminate barriers, you know, and obstacles. And then, you know, when, when I think of our platform, I think of restorative justice. I was going to try and figure out how to interject that word. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Re restorative justice doesn't mean watered down accountability. No, oh. every person has a right to be safe. Well, it also means redemption, not only for those who are accused and convicted, but also redemption or, or restor restoration of those who are caught up in the system of oppression, like Absolutely. the prosecutor that you're talking about, like the people who continue to um, perpetuate the lies that incarcerated you and kept you. Absolutely. That's the harder side, I think, for people right. to accept. Well, well, I, I mean, my success comes because it's harder. Well, it's easier to discard life when you're disconnected from that individual. And, and when I say discard life, some of these prosecutors are, are really just looking for the conviction because, hey, that person's just a number. They're being programmed to where now we're taking the humanity out of justice. 
So now it's just a prosecution. Right. You see what I'm saying? And 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 until we can put humanity back in it and 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 deem the necessary sentence or justice, but but see that necessary sentence, it's supposed to be a healing opportunity for rehabilitation and healing, not to just put somebody away and remove them from society. Yeah, how often we've we heard that our prison system, our justice system creates more criminals than it. Absolutely. So, so, you know, the smart justice cafes, um, say a little more know, about it. Explain those a little more. What is, what is the smart justice cafe? It, it's a platform for theological, uh, framing of, of our criminal legal system. You know, it provides, uh, advocacy training on smart justice initiatives, mainly promoting redemption, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness within, you know, our criminal legal system and to humanize those imp- impacted, you know, and then it just, we also provide, or we want to provide trainings to officials, you know, so, so once again, it's a solution. So what we do is like, we, we encourage people to, to calendar uh, or calendar those trainings. If they're interested in hosting one, we have a template. We just need to know whether it's one hour, two hours or three hours and then it, it it well when we were meeting in person pre-pandemic, we would come in, common ground. We would provide food. Hey, food is always a common denominator between individuals. And if you're not going to get over, get a, get along over a meal, you're probably not going to get along over anything else. We would provide breakfast. Then we would do an introduction of who's in the room. See all the events I have. I will. I. It's a networking opportunity. It's community. I just don't open up with an introduction. I want to know who's in the room. So we do a room introduction of who's there. Then we show a video related to the work that we're doing. And then, you know, usually Katie or or one of, um, you know, we've had Rabbi Bonnie, you know, they'll have a theological framing. And, 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 and some of the best ones I've heard, like, like Rabbi Bonnie, and, and I'm like, wow, where is she getting this from? You know, there would be a, like a 10 minute theological framing on what's going on. And then we will have one of our impacted uh, storytellers come in, you know, someone who's been incarcerated in the system, a family member. And then we would have, well, we would have three sessions of that. And then we would have table discussions and, and quiz questions after each uh, story. So for those listening real quickly, uh, Katie and Rabbi Bonnie. So that's Reverend Katie Sexton. She's actually in another episode of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast and Rabbi Bonnie, who I haven't gotten yet, but I'm hoping to have a conversation with her as well. That's Rabbi Bonnie Sharfman in Scottsdale. Uh, Mm -hmm. Incredible um, spirit for justice and compassion. Um, Yeah. So, all right. So, sorry, I just want to let folks no, know no, who no, may no. be listening. They, they might not know all those folks, but um, so, so you have that. So you have the table discussions and then. And then we do a legislative update and maybe have additional discussions because what, what people don't know, like I, I can't stomach politics. I don't care for politics. However, when you policy, say politics, you mean partisan politics though. Well, I mean, just, I just think, cause I mean, people, I mean, in politics, because I make a distinction between politics is just how do we negotiate how we're going to live together? That's all politics is. But when we start getting into partisan and we start doing platforms and all this other stuff, 
and you know we're right you're wrong red blue that Absolutely. gets ugly because what you're doing is politics yeah and that's why I, I and that's why i have to remember because there's the broad definition when you get to like you said the poli- the the partisan politics where nothing can get done because of people loyal to party lines instead of loyal to what's right and what's wrong. Um, I mean, and even that right and wrong concept, it's like, wait a minute, if you see somebody struggling, and once again, if if it's in your nature to help, you put that hand out, it, you know, and, and we're starting to see um, several inhumane conditions inside of our prisons because people just refuse to to accept the fact that, hey, this is going on and, you know, and, and I don't want to put this on the Republicans who control the state. I think it's a bigger interest of of financial, like like there's a lot of money just because we don't, just because our state prison is not uh, a private prison, it still has several privatized services inside that people, it's an incentive for companies to run the phones, to do the medical, to, to make clothes or commissary. It's a good so, contract. Absolutely. Those, and, and, and now those individuals become consumers or they become labor. So these, these cafes are really to start bringing people together, building those authentic relationships. Right. We have to move away from transaction. Hey, I know Eric, he owns a sandwich shop. Okay. I'm going to go over here and see if I can just get a sandwich from Eric. It's transactional relationships and people have in their circles who benefits them, yeah. you, you know, instead of asking, what could I do to benefit my circle? You know, reverse it. You know, lastly, we have a call to action, which in, in a toolbox of engagement or, or what we like to call the handoff. You know, we want to hand people off to the next events. We want to keep them connected. And it's all about education and awareness because we can talk about reentry. But reentry is going to look different depending where you're released at in the state. Um, whether it's Tucson, whether it's Kingman, you know, depending on where those resources are. So if we had more and more conversations, then we can assist our neighbors. We can build those true uh, definitions of community and people can start feeling secure to where we can shift uh, this, this narrative that our public safety is just in jeopardy. So, hey, the, the person who has uh, addiction, let's just incarcerate the addiction out of them. No. <laughs> no. Because that's worked so well. I mean. Right. You know, it just, and, and now we can just send 10,000 of them in, into prison and incarcerate, you know. So, so and I think our, our faith community, our faith leaders have the biggest role because they are the beacons of life. And I say that when I say the beacons of life, it's like the heartbeat of the community because of congregations, whether you're an imam, whether you're a pastor, reverend, it doesn't matter. There are people who, who feel secure knowing that, okay, when I start to feel or when there's a loss of hope, I can go talk to my pastor, my imam, you know. And so I say this because in the role I play now, you know, in my day job, I'm, I'm with the ACLU of Arizona. I sit on Mountain Park Board of Health. I sit on Arizona Justice Project Board of Health. I mean, uh, Arizona Justice Project Board. I sit on uh, Arizona Faith Network Board, Justice Center Board. I'm in these areas because 
I'm hoping to become a beacon, especially for those who've been incarcerated. That system is, is meant to eliminate hope from day one. And most people come out in despair and then they're just given all these instructions to do this, do that, do that. And, and I'm, I'm here to let them know, like, it's, it's okay. The time I did down the 15 and a half years, you know, I've overcome that. And you can too, if you can get into that right circle. You know, if you look at ourworlduniversal.com and I promote a village concept, when, when a person is released, it's going to take a village to raise a child, but it's going to take that same village to assist them upon reentry. So to get a little, dig a little deeper, we're looking mm-hmm. at, we're looking at trying to reform our justice system. There are a lot of ideas as to what that means and what that looks like. There are the people who have never really been engaged with the justice system, and they believe that the justice system protects them. There mm-hmm. are people who have been caught up in the justice system, and they, like you, who recognize that there's a lot of abuse going on in our justice Absolutely. system, in the name of justice, in the name of protecting those people who have never been a part of it. Absolutely. How It is a huge, giant beast how do we and, and people are making money off of this justice system, as we've talked about that, not only the vendors, the you know, we, not only the private um, prisons that we talked right. about that we've mentioned, but also the vendors, as you've mentioned. Um, it is also a great election tool. I've heard once that the people, the politicians who are um, uh, anti-abortion, for instance, um, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but the people who are uh, anti-abortion, they've had multiple chances to try and actually eradicate and make abortion illegal. They have not. They have not succeeded in doing that because if they were to actually make it illegal like it used to be, they would never, no longer have a platform to get elected on. So they they're using it as a platform as opposed to an actual Absolutely. justice system or an actual justice issue prisons and criminal justice is a platform election issue uh, or an election platform issue. Um, In some ways they really don't have the incentive to fix it because that's how they keep getting reelected. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the law and order politician tough on crime crime and nobody really wants to fix it except the people who are getting caught up in it. How do we, and I'm sure there are exceptions in, in, prosecutor offices and defense offices and whatnot, but how do we fix it? We, we, well, we have to start on truth because, you know, I mean, propaganda is dangerous. It's, it's always been dangerous. It's been used as a tool to, to recruit. It's, it's dangerous. And when you have any individual that's promoting propaganda and, and it's, and it's a lie a flat out lie. And well, I will say that it's a, it's a lie. It's untruthful. That becomes dangerous because now society thinks the solution is to put, it's just like the wolf conning the, the, the farmer into, Hey, let me guard your chickens for you. Yeah. I got big, sharp teeth. I'm a, I'm a keep them safe. You know, thousands of chickens, but every night he eating three of them. Farmer think he's doing a good job because, hey, nobody else is coming. Right. (laughs) But he's not realizing how many he's lost, you know, because he can't count them. So when we look at our criminal legal system, it's the same thing. Somebody goes out, they do something terrible, one individual. But now that gets stretched out and it gets promoted to where now 
and and I think Bush used the term preemptive. Mm-hmm. We attack countries preemptively, and and people don't understand what that word means. They haven't done nothing yet, but they have the potential, or we feel they may have the potential, ten years down the road to do X, Y, and Z. So when we look at our our legal system, we're pre preemptively trying to stop crime, which comes to the movie The Minority Report. I was going to say, I think Tom Cruise was in a Tom movie Cruise, about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we're 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 preemptively thinking, and and that that's where a lot of people are getting caught up in this yeah. in this net. And I think, like, as the community comes and educates themselves, because most of your prisons are where out of sight, out of mind. In that movie, you know, mm-hmm. to, to take that a little further, it becomes clear later in the movie that what's being envisioned is not what will happen, but what could happen. It could doesn't happen. necessarily mean it will. And right. that that was that was the brokenness of that system. Right. Which which laws are created to do what? Regulate conduct. And 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 it's not current conduct. They 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 create laws to regulate what what could be future conduct. And and so, you know, that right there, it, it's just that concept and us holding our elected officials accountable because at what point do they stop representing the community, the people? You know, and 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 I'm 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 fearful of that. That, you know, we just seen it with the protest, where where uh, Phoenix, you, you know, they they charge these people as gang members, right, and put them on and 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 even said they were just as dangerous as the Crips and Bloods, and they they lied to get the indictment, to get these charges. But January sixth were patriots. Right. You know, the way we do, the way we change is we come together and and we eliminate that fear. And we have to stop telling we we don't need a third party interpreter to say, hey, Eric's a good dude and build that relationship for us. No, let's move them out of the way. Let's build our authentic relationships with each other. Think about how much where there's a lack of substance to society today. Are you saying Facebook is shallow? Wait. Absolutely. Say it ain't so. Well, because because once again, some people are motivated to do things for likes. No, I think you're absolutely right. Instagram, all those. It's all about how many likes you have. How many followers do I have? Yeah. And I participated in so many different community events. I mentored people who were hurting, but those are private moments. You would never see Khalil on say, hey, I'm over here feeding the homeless today. But you do have some amazing photos on your ourworduniversal.com. I, I want to buy those just because of the way they look on you. I those, those you. sweatshirts and t-shirts. I, if I can say that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so, but, so, yeah. but, so, but you've mentioned this before you talked about building relationships, you know, when Jesus says, you know, when the scribe comes to Jesus and says, you know, what, you know, what are the greatest rules? What are the greatest laws that we're supposed to be the most important ones? And Jesus says, um, you know, love God with every part of your being and what, that if we unpack what that looks like, loving God is not just a, a feeling, it's a behavior, be in relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And when we are from a faith perspective, when we are in a relationship with God, we will be transformed by that relationship. We will be changed by that relationship, which will then, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as well, in, in the Greek, unfortunately, it says yourself. If you go back to the Hebrew, it says, love your neighbor as I love your neighbor as yeah. itself. 
Uh, love so. your, you are me and I am you and we are intricately woven together and connected and that bond cannot be broken. Uh, and every behavior that mm -hmm. I emit affects you and vice Absolutely. versa and all around the, you know, Barbara Brown, I think it's Barbara Brown Taylor talks about the, the luminous web of creation. Mm -hmm. Everything mm -hmm. is connected. But it's so much easier to dehumanize somebody when I don't see them or I lock them. We see that in war. We saw that during World War II as Nazi Germany demonized um, Jewish people and anyone right. who wasn't like them, socialists and communists. And, you know, they, they demonized anybody and they even drew like caricatures of these people. And we do that today. We did that with terrorists. And we saw the cartoons after 9-11 of, you know, um, right. people who looked Middle Eastern and total propaganda Propag we made we made them out to be these these trolls and that divides us it doesn't bring people together people in prison are still human beings and they are our neighbor uh, immigrants migrants documented or undocumented those are our neighbors yep. uh, and it f it baffles my mind and what pisses me off to quote your language earlier even though you apologize for it <laughs> is that the people at the helm of these anti whatever movements do it under the guise of a christian flag which doesn't right. exist or a christian identity but yet everything they're doing is totally antithetical to everything that jesus did the radical inclusivity absolutely jesus wasn't dealing with the quote nice people or the people that were like him that he liked no he was saying everybody is included in this case including those of you who are perpetuating these unjust systems you can be a part of this community as well if you want to but to want to, you must forget yourself. You must leave yourself behind and come and can be part of this community and look at the community you were talking about just a minute ago. It's about it's about how do we lift up one another, not just me. But we're living in a culture here in the West. That, right. And I've, I've mentioned it many times on this podcast. I've mentioned it many times in my blogs, in my sermons. We are so hyper individualistic to the point of exclusion I don't have to wear a mask. You can't make me. Never mind the fact that the mask isn't for me. It is for you. Right. But that is right. not a concept. Right. We are so hyper-individualistic. What you're talking about in reforming our prison system, I believe our prison system and our justice system is very much a symptom of the brokenness of our community, of our of our nation, of our of our society, of our way of life. It is it is a result of the way that we have developed as a nation the way we have developed as as communities and as individuals what you're talking about is a complete culture turnaround you're talking what you're talking is literally countercultural to the way that our nation has worked for 200 300 years how how do we how do you undo that well we have to understand that most people you know the system is working perfectly how it was designed this country is working perfectly how it was designed because it, it never acknowledged African-Americans or, or I'm, I'm not even going to use that term. This, they never acknowledged Africans as human beings. Um, you know, so now we adopt the term African-Americans. And then even after slavery has ended, I always say there's a thin line between racism and implicit bias. And we see, you know, there's several successful um brothers and sisters you know and but there's this notion that we have to go through the educational system the system is designed 
to keep people isolated and marginalized. And, and, and this is where I say one of my solutions is to also bring the most marginalized individuals to the table. I start there first. And, and when I look at the table, I say, who's not here? That's going to be my first outreach project. Who's not here? You know, and, and, and until we can close those gaps of marginalization in certain communities, we're just going to further and push people alone. Now, granted, there are some people who marginalize themselves. That's a whole nother topic. I don't agree with some of the things on the far left or the far right, because all the people in the middle are the ones who are out here working every day to fund programs or do this or do that. Or, you know, it's us that are getting along that that I like to call the responsibles or the responsibilities of, of society. You mean the adults in the room? Yeah, we're 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 the glue. And but I do understand both sides of that. I understand what's going on over there, but but realistically, this is where we're at and what we can get done together. I've heard it said that the folks on the extremes, left, right, wherever, um, that their reactions as opposed to their responses to whatever ills of society that they view, mm -hmm. um, that both extremes are based mostly on fear yeah, and not on love or compassion or we're in this together. It's right. fear mm -hmm. and pushback and, and they do isolate themselves. That's not a, who, who do you see who is not at the table right now? Well, I, I think that we, we believe those closest to the problem are closest to the solution and those directly impacted are going to be the individuals where, I mean, if we're really promoting second chances, then you need those who have been incar incarcerated at the table. And, and a lot of what's going on now, the changes to the system have come from people who've been inside of it to say, no, that's, they're not being truthful because there's no transparency between these systems and officials and the, and the overall public. So how can somebody like me who grew up privileged, you know, South Orange County, California, mm -hmm. uh, you know, parents paid for college, you know, I've never, my only run-ins with the law is a traffic ticket and I deserved it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to claim that except for one instance, but you know, how can people like me who have not been incarcerated, who have not lived, um, who have not experienced that, how, how do we participate in that conversation? I feel like a lot of times when I'm in a room, I don't have anything to give. I'm white, I'm male. Uh, I grew up with a relatively wealthy family. Not, I mean, right. we're, we're like rolling in it and there were times when we had to tighten our belt, but tighten mm -hmm. our belt meant, oh, I have to go get a job to get bare money. That was tightening our belt, right. <laughs> you know? How do we get involved? How can we participate in those conversations and be a part well, of changing the system? Or can we? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's welcome to participate. Um, and what I do is part of the mentoring piece. You know, some of some of the like the people I bring in, we're always looking for mentors. And and some people have skills in construction. Some people have skills in finance. Some people have skills in in housing. You know, how do we leverage our resources? to how do we leverage our resources to, to assist um, and close those gaps of marginalization, you know, and that, that's why I provide myself as a mentor to some of the guys, because I understood what I had to go through coming out. 
um, it, it wasn't easy, you know, and then I also work with family members now because family members sometimes don't understand how to best assist their loved one. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of traumas associated with confinement. You know, you can get involved just showing up learning. You're, you're, I mean, just, just caring about the issue is probably the first start because most people just go on about their everyday lives not realizing down the street, this is stuff, this is stuff that's occurring. So how do people get involved with these justice cafes? So um, you can go uh, hit up ArizonaFaithNetwork.org and we're calendaring calendaring those out now. And then also we'll be able to, um, if you want to host one in your community, uh, we can set that up easily. Okay. Um, And then my email address is Khalil, that's K-H-A-L-I-L dot uh, Rushdan, R-U-S-H-D-A-N, at azfaithnetwork.org. So, I mean, feel free to reach out and, and you know, let's get some virtual coffee and we can go from there. And and, and I'm always appreciative, Eric, like I said, of, of, you know, being invited to have these conversations, these real conversations. Khalil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, thank you for all you do. Thank you for your partnership and your friendship. Uh, and and uh, um, I, 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 it is a privilege uh, for me to be uh, just simply in relationship with you and be partnering with you to do the work that, that you and so many folks through Arizona Faith Network and other organizations do. Uh, and, and thank you, of course. Thanks so much for coming on the Brewcast. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Be of good courage and know that you are loved. You can find the Brewcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe. Send your comments and questions to eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com. Find the Faith and Coffee blog and older episodes of the Brewcast at faithandcoffee.com. Subscribe and receive email updates directly in your inbox. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily, nor are they intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona. 